0: We're going to do something a little different. I had, when we started this, where I was o- opening in prayer, welcoming everybody, I had thought about opening in prayer and having uh, time for silent prayer and confession at the very beginning. But it wouldn't, I didn't think it would be on the, on the tape or on the CD at the beginning of the message. But I found out that the guys in the back are actually putting everything I say on, on uh, the recording, which is scary. So let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come before you this morning as a body of believers and the freedom that we have in this nation to uh, worship you, to study your word, to uh, express our gratitude for all that you have done for us and, and recognition of the fact that knowing your will and your word is the highest form of worship. Father, we pray that as we sing and as we study that you will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture reading continues to be from Psalm 119. If you would like to read along, open your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 49. Psalm 119, verse 49. Emphasis is on the value and significance of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 49. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine, because I keep your precepts. Let's stand together for our second hymn, number two, Come Thou found. Scripture teaches that it is a privilege and responsibility of every believer priest to be involved in the support of local churches as well as missions. It's a privilege because it gives us the opportunity to be a participant in God's work as he is working through a local church as well as through missions. It is our responsibility because as believer priests, this is part of the package of obligations that we receive at the instant we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we are indeed grateful that you provide everything for us. You have provided everything for us in life and for the spiritual life. And Father, as we reflect upon all that you have provided for us in terms of our material and financial well-being We return these gifts to you to support the ministry because of all that you have done for us. And they are simply a token of our appreciation and gratitude for your magnificent grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two announcements I forgot to mention. Number one, not this week, but the following week. On March the, what will that be, the 9th, yeah, the 7th and the 9th, there will be no Bible class on that Tuesday and Thursday night, though we need that time to get everything in here straightened out. We're going to be adding some new chairs, finishing up, putting the, there will be another projector here. If you've noticed, we have two new screens mounted here, so we're going to have a new Display that will make it possible for people on this side not to be uh, straining as much to see the screen over here. So there won't be class on those two nights. We will, uh, although we will have class both of those particular, both of those Sundays. Now the conference begins on the at about noon on the uh, on the thirteenth. Everybody's invited. If you're available during the day, come. There will be sessions at night, three nights, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. And then on Thursday night of that week, we'll have our normal Thursday night Bible class. We'll have prayer meeting at 730 and then Bible class at 8 o'clock. So that's the schedule for that week. So keep it in mind. And there should be plenty of room for everyone. Let's bow our heads in prayer so we can focus on the word. Father, again, we thank you that we can come together to worship you through singing praise, reflecting upon all that you have done for us and upon your character and your greatness. Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that you have revealed all things to us, that we might be uh, sufficient in your grace, sufficient because we know that all of our sins are paid for by Christ on the cross and that as we have your revelation, we know that we are living in light of a future reality, and so you have included prophecy within your word that gives us a personal challenge to be prepared for that uh, future destiny for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study of revelation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, put them together, and that it will have the appropriate impact in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ commissions the Apostle John to write down what he has seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after these things. That gives us, as we have seen, the structure of, for the book of Revelation, when people think of Revelation, they often think of apocalyptic doomsday, which of course is there. But that's not all there is in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not designed specifically to satisfy a curiosity about the future. Everybody has questions about the future, what's going to happen, when is it going to happen, But all of these things are laid out in the book of Revelation to help us understand how God is going to bring to resolution the problem of sin and evil in the universe. It is not primarily designed to give us just information to satisfy our curiosity, but it is designed to inform us that God will eventually bring to conclusion the angelic conflict that started in eternity past between Satan and God, and that God is going to ultimately judge all evil in the universe. So, Revelation is built around this whole concept of judgment. So, we have the Lord Jesus Christ appear to John while he is on the Isle of Patmos. He is in exile He has been arrested and sent to exile under a persecution carried out during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. And while he is on the Isle of Patmos, suddenly he hears a voice like a loud trumpet. He turns around and there he sees this vision of the uh, Lord Jesus Christ, but not like he saw the Lord Jesus Christ during the time that Jesus Christ was on the earth, during the time when he was Uh, living on the earth between the incarnation and his ascension the vision that he sees of the lord jesus christ is uh, dramatically uh, described in verses 14 and following his head and hair were white like wool white as snow his eyes like a flame of fire his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. His voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. We saw last week that those seven stars represent the uh, messengers, the angels of the seven churches. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The entire picture here from the white hair to the burnished metal uh, legs to the... His countenance like the sun shining in his strength is one of, of whiteness, of brilliance. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of Jesus Christ coming as judge to purify uh, the church. And so Jesus Christ then commissions John to write down what he has seen, that is what he saw there in terms of this initial vision, What the, and then the things that are, which is a description of the trends of the Church age, the trends of churches in the church age. Specifically, that's the second division covered in chapters 2 and chapters 3. And then the third division of the book, the things which will take place after this. That's from Revelation 4 down through Revelation 22. That deals with yet unfulfilled prophecy. Everything from Revelation 4 through Revelation 22 deals with future events. But the picture, the vision that we have described for us in Revelation chapter 1 lays the foundation for understanding what is taking place in Revelation 2 and 3. We have studied Revelation 2 in detail, but that was some months ago before we took our hiatus to go through a series on basic doctrine. So this morning I simply want to review what we covered in Revelation uh, chapter 2. In Revelation 2 and 3 we have seven short letters to seven churches that existed in the western part of Asia Minor in the Roman province known as Asia. Each of these letters follows a certain format. It begins with a commission an address opens each letter to the Angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamos, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Those are the four covered in chapter 2. Then we have uh, three more covered in chapter 3. Then there is a character reference. This is a citation related to something that John saw in the vision. Of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter one, so that that vision then in chapter one lays a foundation that is further developed in chapters two and three. Each of these seven short letters is going to emphasize some aspect of Jesus Christ's appearance in chapter one, and the reason is is because that particular element of His appearance is particularly appropriate for the church and the letter that is being written, the letter of evaluation that is being written to that congregation. Third, there is a section of commendation in five of the seven letters, a a statement of praise, encouragement for their spiritual advance, specific things that they are doing right. Then there is a section of condemnation, again, in five of the seven, not the same five, but in five of the seven, that is because there are two that have uh, that have no mention of anything negative. There are two that have no mention of anything positive and two that have no mention of anything uh, negative. So you have a condemnation where they are warned because they are failing in certain areas of their spiritual growth. Fifth, there is a statement of correction. In these, a challenge to change their thinking in specific areas related to their failure. This is followed by a call or a command to listen. Let those who have uh, ears listen to what the Lord says to the churches. And then this is followed by a challenge, a promise of reward to those who are successful in advancing in the Christian life, those who do not succumb to the Uh, pressures, the adversity, the hostility, the persecution that uh, each of these individual congregations are facing. So this gives us a basic outline. What I want to do today is instead of going through each one individually one at a time, I want to look at each of these sections as they apply to each of the four congregations that are covered in chapter 2, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira in the sense that we want to look at these and how it applies to the church today. Last time I pointed out that you can think of these as sort of a checklist, a character quality checklist, a list of spiritual qualities that are going to be evaluated eventually by the Lord Jesus Christ for every congregation. We have to remember that as goes the individual believer, so goes the congregation. A congregation is made up of a collection of individual believers. Some congregations are quite large, they have several thousand people. Others are quite small, may only have 5 or 10 members. But every congregation is made up of a certain number of believers, and there are some unbelievers as well that that may be involved in a in a local church. That group of individuals is going to manifest certain uh, characteristics or certain qualities. Now, it may be true that for for the most part you may compare two churches and 90% of what they do are the same, and that would be true even of these churches. Each of these congregations lived within 40 or 50 miles of one another, so they and they all operated within the same basic cultural context. They all were in cities where there was a Jewish population. In a couple of these cities, the Jewish population was more, uh, openly hostile and was more antagonistic to the Christian Jews that were in that locale. In some of these cities, the uh, emperor worship that dominated the culture was more prominent than in others of these cities, but it was there in all of them. In some of these cities, there was a more open opposition and persecution of Christians than in others, but there was strong opposition and persecution in every one of these cities. So it has to do with how each of these congregations handled the pressures from the uh, world system around them, from the adversity and hostility that they faced, as well as their response to the Word of God and their commitment to the absolute veracity and integrity of the Word of God and its application in their own lives, and each one of these uh, each one of these congregations is a representative of the church, not only at that time but also throughout all of the church age. These seven churches were historical churches; they represent individual congregations that actually existed at this point in time, at the end of the first century A.D. And each of these congregations. Manifested these particular, uh, these particular strengths and weaknesses. They are chosen not because they are the most dominant churches, although the church at Ephesus certainly was one of the most dominant churches in the ancient world. They are not chosen because they are one of the most, they are the most dominant churches, but they are chosen because each of these congregations represents the trends of congregations at that time in history, but also throughout all of the church age. So when we look at these seven letters, we get a a mosaic of the church throughout all of the church age. And we can go to that and we can look at these these seven letters as we will when we come to the conclusion. We can identify the strengths, the weaknesses of each one and make a list And this list is a general reflection of the way the Lord Jesus Christ is going to evaluate churches, congregations at the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place during the time of the tribulation. So the context of these letters is not that of the epistles that we find in the rest of the New Testament. Those epistles are written in order to... Uh, answer questions related to the spiritual life, to develop the basic doctrines and teachings uh, related to how to live the spiritual life, related to the organization structure of the local church, related to particular issues that arose in some of those churches that would be uh, typical of issues that would come up throughout the church age. But these seven letters... Are not designed to teach spiritual life truth per se. They are written as evaluation statements to these congregations at this particular point in time. In that way, they are a manifestation of the principle that we find throughout Scripture that there's always grace before judgment. God always gives us the information, the revelation that we need in order to deal with whatever is going on in our life before He judges us. God is a God who does judge, but He is not a God who hastens to judgment. He is a God of grace who has provided a solution for us, and in His revelation, He gives us the information we need in order to uh, correct that which needs to be corrected. So we look at these seven churches. The first is the church of Ephesus. Well, let's just put the churches up here on the on the screen. I keep bouncing back and forth in the slides. In Ephesus, the brown area on the map, the shaded area there, is the Roman province of Asia, which is the westernmost part of what we call today is Turkey. These stars that are represented on the map are the seven churches, the seven congregations that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 and they proceed in a clockwise manner starting in the lower left the lower left star is Ephesus you move then due north to Smyrna then further north to Pergamum then back to the east to Thyatira south to Sardis uh, southeast to Philadelphia and then further southeast to Laodicea so they all were similar churches in terms of the culture in which they functioned and in which they operated. Now we come to Ephesus. What's the characteristic in Ephesus? It was a large city. It had a Population that's been estimated at somewhere between 200 and 300,000. At that time, it was a major port. That port has silted in now, and it's about 40 miles from, uh, from the Aegean. But at that time, it was the largest commercial center in Asia Minor. All the trade routes coming in from the, from the landward side all converged into Ephesus. For uh, this time period, most of the first century, it served as the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, in terms of the religious environment there, it was renowned for the Temple of Artemis. You may remember in the Book of Acts when Paul went there that there was he had such an impact in the gospel that the artisans who made little silver uh, figurines of the goddess Artemis who is the goddess of fertility there is a huge uh, temple there that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and there she is as a fertility goddess the many breasted goddess and this is all that is, remains of the seventh wonder of the ancient world and it has been totally destroyed and of course Christianity continues this was a site of a major riot during the time that the apostle Paul was there So there was strong feelings against Christianity. There were other Roman and Greek deities that were worshipped there, including Zeus and Dionysius, Hestia, Serapis, and various others. So there's a strong pagan element. When I was there a few years ago you could still see in the uh, streets and in the floors of the uh, of the homes that had been there that they had mosaics that re- uh, pictured various scenes from uh, uh, Greek mythology and so everywhere you went in any of these cities you were constantly bombarded with the pagan religious symbols that existed in in that Greek culture Smyrna is the second city we look at, which is, here's a picture of the modern city of Izmir, which uh, you see the high point in the center of the city, which is where the ancient marketplace was, and it, of course, is also uh, a major seaport. At the time, the population was less than that in uh, Ephesus, but it was a major city, and it had all of the uh, conveniences of a Roman city at that particular time. There were temples there to all the major deities, including Zeus and Sibylle. Sibylle was uh, the the worship of Sibylle, and uh, her son, Attis, was part of the mother-son fertility ritual that dominated much of the ancient world. By the end of the first century and into the second century, the Jews were quite hostile to the Christians there which led to some notable persecutions and martyrdoms and this cycled from about the period of 80-90 all the way into the uh, 3rd century AD then we come to the third city which is Pergamum Pergamum is where we get our word for parchment. That's where parchment was first manufactured, and the orig- there was a verb, or still is a verb in English, you haven't run into it, I'm sure, called uh, pergamonized, and that means to make parchment. It was uh, originally founded as a Greek colony uh, many centuries earlier. It was 55 miles north of Smyrna, Smyrna, and it was 16 miles inland From the Aegean, there is still a modern city there today known as Bergamo. There were, uh, in the ancient world, prior to the first century, it was a uh, major city and capital of the Pergamum Empire, but by the time of the first century, its influence had been lost due to the rise of the power of Ephesus. But in Pergamum, on the Acropolis, you had temples, glorious temples to Zeus and Athena, Dionysius and Asclepius, but emperor worship was the largest single religion operating in Pergamum. Of course, it was okay if you worshipped all of these other deities, but if you became a Christian, then you became the target of persecution and opposition, and we'll see that the Pergamum church also faced uh, persecution. There were those who had given their life because of their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And then the fourth city that we come to in chapter two is that of Thyatira, the city that had been founded by the Lydian kingdom sometime earlier after uh, Alexander's conquest. Uh, Thyatira had been colonized by Seleucus, who was one of Alexander's heirs. And Thyatira Apollos was the chief deity, but they also had a strong element of emperor worship and a number of other gods and goddesses, including Artemis and uh, Dionysius, and the Sibylle-Attis cult were also present in Thyatira. Now, the point that I'm making with all of this is that that they lived, these Christians that these are written to are people who were not much different from you and I, and they're living and operating in a context where there is tremendous competition among religious views and gods and goddesses. And everything was okay unless you were a Christian. And if you were a Christian, you came along, of course, and you said, well, these are false gods. They're just gods of stone and wood. They're just gods that have been manufactured by human uh, imagination. And there is only one true God. He is the God who revealed himself to the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who became incarnate in Israel as Jesus of Nazareth, who grew to be a man, and then he went to the cross and died for our sins. And you can only have salvation by having faith alone in Christ alone. Well, that just reverberated in a very negative way through all of uh, these cities, just as it does today. There's one thing that really grates and irritates on unbelievers and many liberal Christians, and that is the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is only one way to heaven. But if you are honest and you take a look at what the scripture teaches about the nature of man, the nature of mankind, the problem of sin, it becomes clear that that all roads can't lead to God. Especially if all those roads are mutually contradictory. The Bible is the only book that presents a view of the righteousness of God and that man's problem is basically sin and that that problem has to be dealt with, and man can't deal with it himself. The dead individual, the spiritually dead individual can't heal himself. It must come from outside, and so the Bible says that God is the one who provided that perfect salvation through the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, all of that just was not what the ancient Greek and Roman citizen wanted to hear, just as many today don't want to hear that message. And so there was a reaction. And so in these cities, there was a strong element of opposition, antagonism, and persecution. And so that tested each individual congregation in different ways. As a result of that, some were more successful than others in their application of the word. So we looked at that first element, which is the uh, commission to the angel of the church in the various cities, and then the uh, recognition of who the communicator was, a characteristic of Jesus Christ. When we look at Ephesus, the basic problem in Ephesus was that they had lost their first love. They held firm to doctrine. They had a strong orientation to the truth. They Uh, applied this consistently, but the condemnation that we find there is that they lost their first love. They held to the truth of God's word, but somehow their love for God, love for uh, all mankind, was lost because of their zeal for the truth, which is easy to happen. People can get involved in uh, self-righteousness and before long, rather than serving the Lord and loving others, As the Scripture commands, they lose that first love. So they are being reminded of the continued presence of Christ. In terms of losing their first love, they have lost that priority, even though they are holding to an emphasis on the truth, knowing the truth, learning the truth as a means to knowing God and developing that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ has been lost. So they are reminded that Jesus Christ is the one who Uh, holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is the one who is continuously present in every congregation because the church is his body. The church is the body that he is preparing. It is made up of all the believers who are being prepared today to rule with him in the future. So the church at Ephesus had lost their first love, so they are reminded that Jesus Christ is continually in their presence. The Smyrna church faced tremendous persecution. In fact, they are warned that they will go undergo a serious persecution for a period of ten days, and they are told, Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. They are reminded that Jesus Christ is the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. See, they are being tested even to the point of death just as the Lord Jesus Christ faced opposition to the point of death. But he had victory over death in the resurrection. So when the Lord is addressing them and their particular problem of facing the possible loss of life for their stand for the truth. He reminds them that He also went through that and conquered death for them. The third church, the Pergamos church, is a picture of the worldly compromise church. This is the church that wants to hold on to the truth of God's Word and the fact that Christ died for them, but they realize there's so much pressure from the culture around them that if they get too concerned about uh, carrying out the, the truths of scripture folks are going to think maybe they're a little too fanatical they're a little too uh, fundamentalist so, so we're, we want to keep one foot in each camp we're going to uh, go to church on Sunday and yet the rest of the week nobody's, there's not going to be any discernible difference between the way we live and operate and the way anybody else lives and operates so they were uh, beginning that time honored tradition in Christianity of compartmentalizing the truth of God's word so that it, it has its role on Sunday morning but that's it we'll just put it off here into the guest room so to speak and it won't have its impact on the other uh, parts of our life this was the compromised church and so they are reminded in the image there that Christ is the powerful judge that though they have compromised in immorality, they have compromised doctrine, they have not taken a stand for the truth, they are warned that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is a picture of him coming in judgments, not the machaira short sword, but the two-edged rompia, the large uh, offensive weapon that the Roman soldier carried, the broadsword. And so he warns that if they do not repent, And he will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. We're reminded that Peter warned his readers as well that we were to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because God makes war against the arrogant. God is going to discipline those who set themselves against him in arrogance. So the Pergamos church is reminded that Christ is the powerful judge And there is an evaluation coming someday. Not an evaluation for the church as to whether or not they'll get into heaven or not, but an evaluation with regard to their future destiny in the kingdom. It is not whether they will be there or not. It is how they will be there. And then the fourth church in this chapter is the church of Thyatira. The church of Thyatira is the immoral church. This is the licentious church. This is the church that has completely given up all sense of absolutes. At one point, they were a dynamic, growing church that had their priorities right, for they are told in verse 19, I know your works, that is your production, I know your love, your service, your faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first, but I have a few things against you, and that is that there's a further description there of their sexual immoralities eating things sacrificed to idols, and this indicates that they have completely compromised with the culture around them in terms of their of their values. So Thyatira is pictured as the immoral church, and Christ is pictured as the purifying judge. He is the one, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. He is pictured as the one who will come to purify the rebellious church in divine discipline. So each picture of Christ has something to do with the condemnation that is faced by the church for their uh, failures, as well as, the, in the case of Smyrna, the fact that they will face persecution. The third section that we find in these uh, evaluation statements has to do with their commendation. The positive things that they are doing. How, what are they for? What are they being praised? In Ephesus, they are praised because of their faith. This is in uh, Revelation chapter two, verse two. The Lord says, "I know your works." He says that in each of these evaluation statements. Now. I pointed out last time that there are some variations in some of the ancient Greek manuscripts and not only the oldest but the majority of manuscripts have this phrase I know your works at the beginning of each each of these statements some of your bibles may not have that in one or two of them but that is in the majority in the majority text and should be at the beginning of each one I know your works it's just a general statement of Evaluation, I know everything that's going on in 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 the life of the local congregation. In each of these statements, the Lord uses the Greek verb oida, which has to do with complete intuitive knowledge of everything that's going on in the church. We cannot escape his piercing gaze. He knows everything there is to know about what goes on in the spiritual life of a local congregation. With regard to the church at Ephesus, he praises them for their labor, their, their work, their toil, their involvement in Christian service, their devotion to study the word. That word labor involves everything. It's not talking about negative uh, human good works. It's, it's talking about the fact that they are laboring. Uh, Paul uses the word to talk about his labor in the ministry. It's a very positive concept. Their labor in studying the word—it is not something that uh, comes easily. So they are laboring in their spiritual growth. They're making it a priority. They're studying the word. Uh, they are patient. This is the Greek word hupomone used twice here for endurance. It's not the concept of patience versus impatience. The fact that you may get irritated easily, or that things don't go as quickly as you would like them to do. That's the that's the Greek word makrothymia, which means long on anger. Now, that's another virtue in the Christian life, but that's not what is being emphasized here. What's being emphasized here is the principle of perseverance hanging in there in the Christian life. How many times do we see people, and we know of people in our own lives who are this way that they get They understand the gospel. They begin to get excited about the fact that that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. They begin to understand what grace means. They have all kinds of questions about God, how God deals with mankind. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? And for a period of time, they seem very enthusiastic about learning the word. And during those early years in their Christian life, they are excited about studying the Word, learning the Word, and then something happens. It can be an excessive trial where they get become bitter towards God. They go through some sort of adversity. Or maybe they just get their questions answered and they begin to become somewhat... Uh, Uh, complacent about their relationship with the Lord. They think, well, I've, I've learned all this. I've got this down. I can spend a little more time at the office. I spend some more time with my kids doing this or that. Whatever it is, all of a sudden their priorities begin to subtly shift. And instead of being at Bible class and two or three times a week and listening to tapes two or three times a week, they begin to find other things to do, thinking that they can coast, on what they've learned. And then the next thing you know, they are sliding in their in their spiritual life. They haven't persevered. They haven't endured. That's the biblical principle. And it's hard. You get saved when you're 6 years old or 12 years old or 20 years old. And when you're 40 or 45 years old and you've been a faithful student of the Word, you begin to think, well, there's not a whole lot new I can learn. And in the broad sense, that's true. There's not a whole lot more that You can learn, but it's now the time in your spiritual life for you to work on practice, work on consistency, work on implementation. You come to Bible class not so much to learn new things and to have questions answered as much as to be continuously reminded that God is faithful. God has provided everything for your spiritual life, that whatever you face in the coming week, God has provided a solution for from eternity past that we have to keep him first. That's our highest priority is our spiritual life. And so there's a shift that takes place as we get older that is, that is subtle. And if the same thing that motivates us when we're younger uh, we, we we shift from one thing that motivates us when we're younger, which is that desire to get those questions answered and to learn some things, to a desire simply to serve the Lord and to grow and to be consistent. And a lot of people don't make that shift. They don't endure. They they drop out. And we see that happen too much. So Paul, I mean, the Lord praises them. I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And so this word is used twice in this sentence. It has to do with uh, not putting up with something. And so there's a priority there that those who are compromising are not accepted in this congregation. They're taking a standard. And the word there for evil doesn't mean just sin. It means those who are committed to idolatry. To understand the word evil, you have to go back into the Old Testament. And about 90... Eight percent of the time in the Old Testament, evil is associated to worshiping another god. It has to do with idolatry. It has to do with shifting completely away from a God-oriented view of life to a uh, man-oriented view of life. It is a. It it not only involves sin, but it involves a total way of thinking that removes God from the center of our thinking and replaces Him with something that's in the creation order but he's focusing on where they have been, their endurance, they can't bear those who are evil, and that they've tested those who make various claims to apostolic authority. goes on in verse 3, you've persevered. You have, uh, you have persevered, that's Monet again, and have patience, that's bastadzo again, that they, have, uh, they put, uh, have continued to put up and endured the struggles in the Christian life and put up with opposition and hostility for my name's sake. In other words, that's their priority because Jesus Christ is who he is. That's what motivates them. And they haven't been become weary. Now, there's more said in terms of individual qualities in that Ephesian church than any of the other church. It gives us a strong list of qualities God is emphasizing. On the negative side, they reject completely the claims of the Nicolaitans down in verse 6 they hate the works of the Nicolaitans we saw that the Nicolaitans were a group that uh, operated in a sect that operated in the early church that advocated eating meat sacrificed to idols, sexual licentiousness and they were also involved in the fertility rites and the pagan religion so they were a group of compromisers with the culture around them but that wasn't enough. There were problems at Ephesus. They had left their first love. The Smyrna church is praised because they faithfully endured in the face of persecution. It is a real persecution. They have lost what they had. They are in poverty. This isn't the poverty that has little. This is the poverty. The Greek word toikeia, which has to do with the fact that they are in abject poverty. They have lost everything because of the hostility of the culture around them that has restricted their ability to engage in business and in ownership because of their Christianity. And they are warned that they are about to go through an even more intense period of opposition and suffering and some of them will lose their life. They are to be faithful until death. The church at Pergamos is praise because they have also endured in the face of tribulation and martyrdom just as the those in Smyrna but unfortunately they have compromised severely they thought that the way to handle this was well maybe the persecution will lighten up if I am uh, if, if I, we don't draw a strong line so they've compromised in the area of of doctrine and they've compromised in the area of their values and their absolutes so they have yielded to the doctrine of Balaam which has to do with compromise in the area of morality uh, eating things sacrificed to idol sexual immorality as well as with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans there's a certain overlap between those two groups but there was a distinction but the bottom line picture there is that they're yielding to the pressure from the world system around them they're not Uh, Isolating what the scripture teaches about thinking biblically and taking a hard stand because they they, they want to alleviate the pressure of the hostility of the culture around them. There are those there in Pergamum, though, that have lost their life because of their faith, and one is mentioned, his name is Antipas. The fourth church, the church in Thyatira, had positive things mentioned about it as well. They began well. They were strong on love, service, doctrine, and endurance, but they faded in the stretch. Again and again in these evaluation statements, we come back to the emphasis on endurance, on hanging in there through the long haul, staying in the race until it's over with. Then we have correction. correction. In the Ephesian church, the correction is Repent, which means to change your thinking. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins or have remorse. The command to repent in Scripture has to change your thinking about something, with the result that it changes what you're doing. So they are challenged to repent and to remember the former things. They've drifted off course and now they need to get back on course. And so they are challenged to remember their former works in 1 5. Smyrna has no correction because they are doing things well. Pergamos is warned, Repent, that is, change your thinking, or I will come quickly and I will fight against you. In Thyatira there is an even more profound warning, to repent or I will cast her into a sick bed, kill her children with death, and this indicates that there will be divine judgment and discipline on the congregation that even to the point of the sin unto death and that God will put them under severe uh, discipline and it will cost the health and the lives of those in the congregation because of their uh, compromise of truth. And then each of these letters ends with a challenge, a challenge, an incentive that you're saved, you trust Christ as your Savior. You put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. That means you'll spend eternity in heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It doesn't have anything to do with what you do or what you don't do. Salvation has to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. But as a believer, that doesn't mean that, oh, goody, my sins are paid for. I can just do whatever I want to now. We are saved for a purpose. We have been foreordained to good works, and God has a destiny for us in the future kingdom when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. The cadre that will come with him that will establish the administration in the future millennial kingdom are those church-age believers who go forward in the Christian life. This is our training ground. It's like boot camp. We're getting prepared for something. And the issue is whether or not you are going to be a part of that, cooperate with that preparation and go forward. Those who do, those who endure, those who learn doctrine and apply doctrine, those who press on, are called overcomers in these letters. And each one of these short evaluation statements has a promise to the overcomer believer, uh, special rewards, special privileges that are ours if indeed we continue, we press on. This is the incentive. We're saved freely by grace. But there's an incentive clause that comes with salvation, an incentive to press on and to go forward in the Christian life. For the Ephesian church, the Lord says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The paradise of God seems to indicate A special area within heaven, a special area of personal fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. The idea of eating throughout Scripture is always a picture of fellowship, of intimacy. So this is a promise of reward, of special intimacy with the Lord in His kingdom. To the second church, to the church at Smyrna, there is a challenge that he who overcomes shall not be hurt "...by the second death." Now the second death is judgment in the lake of fire, and we went through a study of that, in and it took a couple of weeks, where I showed that this isn't saying that these believers are, lose their salvation or are sent to the lake of fire, but according to Revelation chapter 21, 6 and 7, their inheritance, their portion, it's translated their part, the Greek word meros, indicates that share or that inheritance, Of those who are failures in living the Christian life, their inheritance, their reward is cast into the lake of fire. That's how they're hurt. They lose their reward. They lose their position and privilege that they would have had if they had persevered in the Christian life. So they are encouraged that if they overcome, even in the face of death, if they stick with it and endure, they will not be hurt. They will not lose reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The church of Pergamos is warned that if they do not straighten up, then Christ will come and judge them. But those who listen, those who respond, those who are overcomers, he will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Manna was what the God the food that God had provided for the Jews when they were going through the wilderness and the idea of the hidden manna, manna pictures their enjoyment of an intimate fellowship with the Lord and with others in the kingdom. Furthermore, they are given a white stone, and this white stone indicated uh, people who were either, uh, there's two ways you you can look at that. The, the white stone was uh, frequently given to victors in the athletic Competitions. We are going through the Winter Olympics right now, and so those who won the Olympic competitions would be given a, a white stone, and it had his name engraved on it, and it was a reward or a token that enabled them to gain admission to a special feast. Uh, in a similar way, there was another a cultural thing where a white stone would be given to, by wel- uh, wealthy families to close friends, which would indicate that they were welcome to come and eat and to feast with the family that had invited them. So the idea of a white stone here is an indication that the one who possessed it would have access to this special meal with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Thyatira is told that those who overcome when we come to verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, notice the emphasis on perseverance, keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. And then there is a quotation from Psalm 2:89 and 9, that we will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the one who overcomes has special intimacy with the Father, access to special areas and invitations to special feasts, and has a position of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ has power over the nations. Furthermore, he says, I will give him the morning star, which seems to be a special kind of reward. And then the challenge, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And when this was written by John, these individual letters were not written; were not sent one to one church, one to another church, one to the third church. But the entire book of Revelation was written at one time and then a copy of the whole book was sent to each congregation because you see as the years go by we may change from being a congregation like Ephesus to a congregation like Smyrna or maybe to a congregation like uh, Pergamum there, there will be changes so every congregation needed to know how God was not only how the Lord Jesus Christ was not only evaluating them but also was evaluating other congregations because this whole sections develops with how the Lord Jesus Christ is going to evaluate all of us at the judgment seat of Christ. So the issue is, are we going to respond and put into application the things that are taught in these letters or not? To the one who listens, there is great reward. But to the believer who doesn't, they run the risk of losing reward Losing privilege, losing responsibility at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the loss of eternal life, but the loss of reward. And that's what Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's bow our heads together and close in closing prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed to us our future destiny. You have challenged us, encouraged us, motivated us in your word, recognizing that, that there is an incentive to live to study the word, to endure, to persevere, that we might be prepared to rule and reign with our risen Lord when he returns in the kingdom. First of all, the most important thing is that we are saved, and that comes only by putting our faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. Everybody's a sinner. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all are in need of salvation. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single human being. Therefore, the only thing that you need to do is to put your faith in Christ. It's not a matter of what you've done, what you haven't done, what church you belong to, what ritual you've engaged in. It's a matter of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you've never put your faith in Christ, this is your opportunity All you need to do is put your trust in Christ, and God in his omniscience knows what you're trusting in for salvation. At that instant, you are justified, you receive eternal life, which can never be taken from you, and you have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we pray for every believer here that we would be challenged by what we have studied this morning, recognizing that we are saved for a purpose and a destiny. And that we are to study your word so that we can learn to think, so that we can develop the capacity for life and the capacity for responsibility and leadership in the future. Father, we pray that you will take these things and God the Holy Spirit will uh, drive them home in the thinking of each one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.